0: Fans, teachhoops.com slash 816 basketball has all the resources that you need to be a better coach, period. Today's basketball coaches are dedicated year-round workers who face fierce competition to keep their jobs. And excellent instruction is out there, but finding it is inconvenient, unorganized, and it can be hit or miss. So visit teachhoops.com slash 816 basketball. Sign up for the free trial. You're going to want to go past that free trial. We guarantee it. And be sure to join our good friend, Billy Kegler, on the Competitive Mindset Podcast, where guests share how they differentiate themselves and achieve high levels of performance through the lens of motivation, competitiveness, and mindset. Join along on the journey to lifelong learning and improved performance with the Competitive Mindset Podcast. Follow on social media at Competitive Pod. Hello and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Rosefield, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris de Blasio. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here,
1: as always, on the Greatest Games podcast. The chance for us to catch up with basketball coaches from around the country and have them tell us about their greatest game. As always, it can be their time as a head coach, an assistant coach, a high school coach, a college coach, uh, even if you've got a couple of national championship rings clanging around on your fingers. Just whatever game they consider to be their greatest. (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's right and you know always pay real close attention to your uh, you kind of pre-intros there Chris De Blasio and you're right our guest today has a couple of national championship rings from his time as a division 1 assistant coach he's been a division 1 head coach and an NBA assistant coach our guest today on the greatest games podcast coach Larry Shiat. thanks for joining us coach Well it's
2: great to be here guys and uh, in these crazy times it's great to talk basketball because Somehow we've gotten through this year, and I have a sneaking suspicion in the months ahead, once we're settled and things are somewhat over, uh, we're all going to have a, a higher level of appreciation of what we've gone through.
1: That's, that's That might be the most intelligent and insightful thing said in 90-something episodes on this podcast, <laughs> and it's 30 seconds old, this episode. But, Brian, he, he has enjoyed many roles as a coach and, and all those things, but I know he's enjoying his greatest role right now, and that is as Grandpa Shia.
2: Grandpa's got three, and we, we just found out last week we have number four coming in August, so that's been fun. Uh, wouldn't you know, I stepped away from basketball a year ago, July, uh, with the Mavs. And uh, wouldn't you know six months later this thing hits and we we really haven't had a chance to spend the, the quality time we wanted to with those family members. But you know what? Like I said, June, July, August, whenever it is, we're going to have a ball and we're going to party like never before.
1: And, Brian, you'll like this. I, I've gotten some intelligence. Uh, Coach Shiat has a boat up on the lake up there in the upstate so we can enjoy some time on the boat in the upstate as well.
2: But you know what? We, we actually, people thought we were pretty good coaches out west when we won the thing in Wyoming. And we talked about Pam and I retiring in the Denver area just because we loved it there. But it, it's not home for our three boys. Uh, Clemson and South Carolina was home for our three boys. They all went there. Two of them played for me for a year. And so we decided uh, we're at the cliffs at the vineyards about 30 minutes north of Clemson, maybe 45 minutes south of Asheville in the mountains here. It's been beautiful. Uh Pam's probably sick of me by now, but uh it's time that we we needed to spend together uh as much as I miss uh the college game.
0: Well, I tell you you, you you mentioned that that Colorado area. I was talking to, to Sully the other morning and he's getting ready to take a trip out there and it is absolutely. I, I told him. I said that it ruined the mountains of North Carolina for me, just how large and how expansive, and what kind of views there are. But I'm, I'm with you. I'm born and bred in South Carolina, here too. And I just, uh, it's, it's hard. I love traveling. Love getting on a plane, but it's always great to come back where everybody is. And it's just, I, I can hear that for sure. In what you, what you just shared there, Coach.
2: Well, never did we ever think we'd end up in the South. And then certainly once we came down here, and we're here close to ten years. Um, I wasn't sure we'd ever retire here, but it, it, it makes sense. And like I said, you know, it's something that where our boys always want to come back, their fraternity brothers, their friends. Um, and so it does make sense. We love it here. And, uh, like I said earlier, you know, uh, coach Carlisle and, and Mark Cuban were so generous and so kind to me those three years, but, um, it, it wasn't a good fit, uh, I think I've said this before. If you've been the wife of a college head coach, uh, you're mama shy. The kids are over the house a couple times a week. You have uh, holidays with them. You get on the uh, uh, charter flight and go to games. And so there's a place for you. And if you're a wife of a NBA coach, I don't care if you're head coach or one of the five assistants, you clearly are only a season ticket holder, and I, I felt bad. It just wasn't her place, and it wasn't fair to her. So we stepped away, Uh but no regrets. We love every minute, and I'm glad to be here with you guys talking hoops.
1: Well, Coach, take us quickly through that journey to, to how you got to, uh, to Wyoming and South Carolina, a boy from Ohio. Good Midwestern boy in Ohio and, and, and this journey that basketball is taking you on and some of these amazing stops you've had. Just tell us, take us through some of that quickly.
2: Well, first of all, very difficult, not just for me, very difficult for anybody. We were very, very fortunate. We got married uh, June of 75 and neither one of us had a job, but we both had degrees I went out to Utah. She was a dental assistant for a fifty an hour. I was a GA making about the same. And somehow we made it. And then we got our first uh, full uh, coaching job at Cleveland State University back in Cleveland where we were both from. And then it was six years voyages, six at Cleveland State, six at the University of New Mexico with the great Gary Colson, uh, six at Providence with Rick Barnes. Featuring the first and only uh, Big East Championship at Providence in 94. And then uh, three years with Rick at Clemson. And uh, finally, after 24 years, a head coaching job at Wyoming. And uh, ups and downs, you know, we had some tough years at Clemson. We didn't do a great job coaching, probably didn't do as good a job recruiting, but kept our nose clean and uh, no regrets And then, who knows, uh, it's the most embarrassing, demeaning feeling uh, a coach can have when they're fired, especially in the ACC when you think everybody's watching. But if it hadn't happened, I never would have teamed up with Billy Donovan with those two national championships and five uh, uh, league championships um, and never got a chance to go back to Wyoming to finish some business that we had started in 97. So a different type of run than most people. I was only a head coach 11 years. I was a proud and happy assistant for close to 34 years. And um, looking back, I I, I don't think we changed a whole lot. I wish we'd have done better at at Clemson, but maybe had we done better, we wouldn't have had this ending that we had at Wyoming.
1: Coach, talk about that year off is when I got to know you. I think it was only one year after you got let go of Clemson and, and before you hooked on to Florida. You used to come to games in South Carolina because Jeremy was working with us as a GA. Uh, talk about that year off and, and sort of your mental health and then also things you did to stay involved with the game. Did you, you go around and see people, talk to people, and, and how that can help a coach maybe having a year off like that in the middle?
2: Well, first and foremost, you have to get over the hurt. And it's a hurt. It's a family hurt. It's a personal hurt. You failed in front of a lot of people. Um, I I, I think uh, we were one of the few and we can get into this later that at the highest level tried our hardest to avoid the uh, whether it was a Brett Barrett or whomever else and tried to avoid that. But at the same time, we fell short. So once we got over that, I felt like, you know what? I want to get uh, to practices. I want to see how other people operate. I went to a lot of Furman practices with Larry Davis and Nico and that crew. I went to a lot of uh, Wofford practices with Mike Young, my dear friend, and Charleston. And of course, I enjoyed in a different limelight uh, going to South Carolina. Who would have ever thought? But (laughs) Dave Odom was so kind to Jeremy in a day and age where that may have not happened had it not been a person that was as caring as Dave. And he took great care of Jeremy. And so I sort of enjoyed going to watch the the, the game cox. They had a great run. And so between all of that, I sort of got my taste back. And then I had a couple opportunities, uh, one at Virginia with – my dear friend uh, Pete Gillen, which I chose not to go because I read the the tea leaves and I knew that the administration had other things in mind for, for Pete, a dear friend. And that's when Billy called. I'm um, in the backyard in Clemson. Jeremy happened to be home for a day or two and he called and Jeremy said, Dad, I'll kill you if you don't do this. He's <laughs> a great guy. They're terrific, but they're just coming up short. And I got to tell you, Uh, My first day on the job in June of that year, uh, I walked in for my first day on orientation and in walked uh, four freshmen, Torian Green, Corey Brewer, Joe Kim Noah, and Al Horford. So I got to tell you that the three of us could have coached that damn team.
0: (laughs) You're talking about some names that, that might come up later in this, in this show. And I, you know, I, I've, I've loved college basketball for a long time coach. And one of those teams that I've been a closet fan of has been the university of Florida. And I'm still somewhat of a Florida fan, even though Billy Donovan is still not the coach there. So I'm, I'm selfishly asking what was it like to be around that program, to be around Billy Donovan? I just, from an outside perspective, looking in, it just seemed like a, a obviously a clean program, a sharp program. Kids always knew what was expected of them. And it just, it just, it just, I'm just fascinated to hear more about what that was like for you to see what was going on behind the scenes there.
2: Well, from my perspective, um, uh, Florida had had some five-star players previously. Uh, none of those guys that we just mentioned were five-star players except for Corey Brewer. Joe wasn't a top hundred. Al wasn't a top hundred and Corey Green wasn't even a top 150. And I recruited, uh, Lee Humphrey as at, at uh, at Clemson, and he was a walk-on at first at Florida. It, it just seemed like um, nobody expected, really including us. Billy probably could lie in front of the cameras now, but <laughs> nobody expected. When uh, David Lee and, um, and uh, Matt Walsh and Pete left, the leading score in the program was Corey Brewer, I believe 6.4 points a game. We were not picked not only in the top 25, we were not picked to finish in the top five in our league. And then lightning in the bottle struck. They got together. They, they sort of worshipped each other. And it, it was something that uh, not a lot of people can ever go through. And I, let me give you one stat that stands out with that group. First of all, it's the only team in the history of college basketball that the same starting five, Humphrey Green, Brewer, Horford, Noah started both years back to back and won national championships. Only time ever. It probably will never happen again because all the (laughs) Carolina's way, (laughs) but what was most impressive to me was their will to win and the hatred of losing and 1.6 doesn't mean anything to a lot of people, but. None of those five guys took more than 1.6 shots, more than the other guy. That can never happen nowadays because somebody's supposed to be the guy. And they were smart enough to understand if you're dumb enough to double Horf, then those other two guys are going to get J's. And if you're dumb enough to play us straight up, then Joe and I will go to work for 18. But they loved to win and they hated to lose And it was a joy to be around them because they actually were really good kids, like all five really good students, not fair students, really good students. And in this day and age, and I got to share this with you, and then we'll go to the next question because it kills me. Growing up, there's no bigger fan for a Duke in Carolina than this guy here. And to become a coach in the ACC, more or less a head coach, was an unbelievable thrill at first. But I got to tell you, Duke was making 29 wins and four losses every year, forever. And in my world, when they decided whatever decision was right or wrong, it's not mine to discuss, but when they decided to go four, five, sometimes six one-and-dones per year, to match Kentucky's four, five, and six one-and-dones, which meant, honestly, these kids are going to be there five or six months only. They're not even going to know the school colors. And it killed me. It was like a dagger in the heart because they represented Carolina and Duke. To me, the essence of success, uh, you graduate guys. They love the school they learn who the kids are at the, at the school. Uh, They're playing for the school or the coach, whether they were or not. And this changed everything for me. And I get it. I understand it. I'm a big boy, but I can't tell you that it still hurts some because they still could be 29 and four every year with the guys that they used to have.
1: That's very true. Uh, Yeah. That, that, that seismic shift in the one and done, I think, uh, I definitely think it's when, when Duke made the decision to go to that, I think that shifted everybody else in college basketball, Kentucky had kind of been doing it already. And then I think when people saw Krzyzewski and Duke make that switch, everyone kind of went to that. Um, but coach, you talked about college basketball and that, and the school colors and the, and being on campus and, you know, what was this may be a little bit of a loaded question. Cause you just talked about the ACC. I'm just going to kind of go on the fly ACC and SEC two leagues that you had a chance to coach in a bunch. What were some of your favorite venues to go into as a road coach? Uh, just, just cause of the venue, just cause of the, the vibe and the, and the scene, you know, that whole thing, I can tell you for Brian and I, I know what number one is and it's, uh, the swamp. It's Gainesville. We loved going into that building, the the O'Con- Lawrence O'Connell Center, right? That's right. That's yeah. Right. So, what were some of your yeah. favorite venues to go into? Uh-huh. You know, just to bring your team into and walk out on the court and have everyone there against you. What were some of those favorite venues?
2: Well, I, there's a, a couple jump to mind when I I was in the Big East for six years, and of course, That's right. playing at Syracuse was like mind boggling because <laughs> when we went the shoot around, you know, it was crickets. And then by the time you came out for the starting lineups, it was absolute insane. And those were the days. It was a six-foul rule. There was a fight every night, <laughs> no layups, no dunks. It was crazy times, those six years in the Big East. And, of course, in the ACC, to me, there was nothing, nothing like Coalfield House at, at Maryland, the old place. Uh, I played in the new place, too. But, there, but the Coalfield House atmosphere When you got ready to walk out, it's one of the few venues where both teams walked out together. I mean, it's crazy. You could have had fist fight after fist fight, but Cole Fieldhouse was a phenomenal home court. And uh, Gary Williams did it uh, in my years, especially as head coach, when he uh, went to the Final Four and then he won the national championship Mm -hmm. during my five years. A great home court. And then I got to tell you, my my five years back in the Mountain West, um, Fish, uh, Coach Fisher, who had taken that program, San Diego State, from really its infant stages, uh, when they built their new facility, I got to tell you something. I would go out there my last four years, and I would sit in the student section for 15 minutes before the game and ask them to give me all their early because I knew what it was going to be like. San Diego State has one of the best home court venues in this whole country. Yeah, give it to me me right now. Whatever you got.
0: You, you mentioned the O'Connell Center, Blas, and I I I I'll never forget the first time walking in there. We I feel like we got to the games very early. And I don't know if it was an hour and a half, two hours, or whatever. It was it was very early before a college basketball game. And it could have been a noon tip, but that student section, and I I forgetting the name of the student section, absolutely full of kids just dressed and they're yelling and screaming at our kids. And then one year they had done research. I mean, they had researched our kids and they were calling out stuff to, I, I won't even say names on the air to some of our kids. And I, I, I remember seeing one of them in particular, just walking on the floor and he stopped and kind of looked like, how did they know that? And it was just <laughs> absolute pandemonium. And uh, I just, anyway, I just, I wanted no, to,
2: no, I, I hear you loud. Let me tell you this. Can you, us three imagine being a student because I was a little crazy when I was a student. <laughs> Can you imagine being a student during that time when we win back to back national championships and Urban wins two football championships? So, if you were a student in four years, you won four national championships. I mean, you probably were more drunk than sober during those four <laughs> years. <laughs>
1: I like I like the uh, the San Diego State story. That's good. I, I won't tell the whole story on the air, but Joe Kim Noah had one of the best responses to his student section I'd ever heard at South Carolina before a game. But I'll, I'll save that for off the air. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah two of those for us at practice too. <laughs> let, let me tell you something quickly about Joe Kim. Joe Kim, uh, as a freshman, I don't know if you remember, uh, got a severe case of mono so severe that he could not swallow. Um, breathing was tough. I took him to the emergency at, at, at 1.30 a.m. We didn't get out till 7 a.m. because they would not let him out until he could breathe on his own on the phone all night with his mom. Well, let's take it seven years later. He's now in the pros, kick and tail. I decide, although I never wanted to be a head coach again, I go with my best friend back to Wyoming and I I take the head job in 211 back to Wyoming to try to sort of recapture what we had and hope that we could win a championship. Joe Kim Noah and uh, Jeff N. Gundy came to Midnight Madness for nothing. And I will never forget that because he did not only not have to do that, but he told the story about the night that he was so ill. And those are the kind of stories, like on a Friday night, if I get a call from an E Turbay, Or if I get a call from a Corey who's so excited that he just boined the Pelicans. And we usually don't talk basketball. It's usually about how's your family, how you doing. That's the essence of what real coaching is. To make a stand, develop a relationship, and hope that the relationship is based on truth and love and not just uh, W's and L's.
1: Oh, that you you talked about it before, um, the difference between coaching in college and coaching in the NBA, and that story uh emulates it right there. Like, if uh, a pro player gets sick, you're not the one taking them to the hospital at one in the morning, you know. But as a college coach, as a college assistant, we were talking about Rick Duckett before. Rick Duckett got a call at two in the morning one August night that, uh, um, student athlete of ours had showed up on campus as a freshman and he was standing in the parking lot of the practice facility and he had one bag to his name and coach Duckett said, I went and picked him up and I had to take him to the store to get him a toothbrush at two 30 in the morning.
2: Those are the stories that like, especially us old time coaches, we, we love to hear, uh, we understand. And there's a lot of wonderful young coaches out there right now but I I do have to tell you that it's disappointing that there's a lot of high level coaches because the money has changed the game. So dearly um, you have people who now go into coaching to get wealthy. Um, That couldn't happen. When I was going into coaching our generation, you were told uh, you could be a high school coach or you could be a college coach. The salary is going to be the same. (laughs) If you want to be a high school coach, you're going to have to teach. But the good news is after 25 or 30 years, you're going to have a pension, which when you're 19, who gives a shit about pension? But if you're a college coach, you won't be able to get that pension, but you won't have to teach. You'll just have to recruit. And that was really the, the delineation between being a high school coach and a college coach. Of course, in those next 30, 40 years, TV – and product and a lot of things changed uh, and a lot of positive things because it's a great profession now and a, and, and a well-deserved, well-paid profession. But consequently, the love of game is not quite what it was because it has become far more a lucrative profession than it is uh, coaching and teaching and mentoring, which... You know, in those days, that's hey, that's what you want to do, shy. You can coach, you can teach, you can mentor. You sure as hell aren't going to get wealthy.
1: Well, Coach, the name of the podcast is The Greatest Games. So why don't you take us through one or two or a couple of great games that you had a chance of being a part of? You talked about the Providence team that won the Big East. We've talked a little bit about the Florida team that won back-to-back national titles. Any games that come to mind when I say, what was the greatest game you were ever a part of as a coach?
2: Well, the, the greatest game that I was ever a part of and my family was ever a part of, unquestionably, is in 2015 when – a school named Wyoming, who probably wins a championship once every 40 years. We cut the nets down in Vegas. Um, We had five seniors who all graduated on time. Larry Nance was drafted in the first round, and we cut the nets down. And my son, who's very dear to me, Jeremy, as you well know, was my top assistant. So it's like the beer commercial. It doesn't get a whole lot better than that. It was wonderful. Um, The athletic director, one of my dearest friends in life, it meant a great deal for him to bring me back. And at a place that was so unexpected, that truly was the high point of my entire career, maybe my marriage, except for the three boys being married, because it meant so much to Pam and I. Um, One game... If I had to pick a game, not including those two national championships, one game was we were really struggling at Clemson many of those five years until the last year, really. Uh, But we caught a a North Carolina team that had won, I want to say, 14 in a row. They were number one in the nation. And we had lost something like six or seven in a row. And we caught them at the right time. And we beat them in Little John Coliseum when they were number one in the nation. And, you know, nobody was probably any more damn surprised than me, but it was a great night. Uh, it was a terrific memory. And th- those are two games that stand out, but to our family, unquestionably, t- uh, tearing the nets down and cutting them down in Vegas and winning the conference uh, championship and going to the NCAA at Wyoming was unquestionably the high point of my career.
1: Well, Coach, I picked you in the first round of the NCAA tournament that
2: year. (laughs) I hope you didn't lose too much money. (laughs) (laughs) We played a very good team. Uh, I'm not saying we had a bad draw, but Northern Iowa was – Well coached. He's a dear friend of mine. And, and they were really a good team. I think they were 14th or 13th in the nation at that time, but sort of unrecognized. And boy, oh boy, those three days when we started watching tape, you know, my sphincter got this big.
0: (laughs) That's the thing about the tournament. I, we uh, This past weekend, getting to see uh, our, our good friend Brett Carey is in Indiana State. They have just won seven in a, in a row in the Missouri Valley and then watched Northern Iowa knock them off. Uh, and and that's, that's, that's really good basketball. So, yeah, that, that's a tough draw. I'll tell you right now. It's a really tough draw to get Northern good, Iowa in the first round.
2: Good teams, you know. And, uh, but we had a great run. And like I said, I think what meant more to me was all those guys that we had brought in graduated on time. Larry goes in the first round, Um, you know, this is a place, Wyoming, they, it's the only state in America that only has, I don't know if you knew this, we only have one four-year institution in the whole state, so they rally around that, that university, and it meant a great deal for us to come back with a a great friend, uh, our AD, uh, uh, Tom Berman, and Grab that. And and just so you guys know how the story ended, I, I was gonna walk away. I had six more years, a lot of money. Mama Shy still pissed. Um, <laughs> I had five more years wanted to add some. Um, and I said, Pam, if we leave now, we're gonna get in the Hall of Fame. And I know how this profession works. Two years from now, they may not love Papa Shy. And so let's step away now. We can get one of our assistants a five-year deal. That's what the profession's supposed to be about. And we'll step away. And so it took us nine months to pull that off, but we did. And, and I said, okay, here's the deal, Tom. I'm no idiot. I know you're going to pay my assistant probably half of what you paid me. So the school gets money, the assistants all and their families all get security, and Mama Shike and I can walk away feeling pretty good. And we actually were going to step away, take this. Pam had already bought this place. I never even saw it uh, at the cliffs, at the vineyards. And um, that's when a week later is when Rick Carlisle called. And we go back some years and he goes, shy. I read what you did. Nobody does that. Nobody does what you just did. You come with me. You'll love the NBA and uh, you deserve an experience like this. And as I said, he and Cuban were so kind, but it, it just didn't work for Pam and for me selfishly. If it didn't work for her, it doesn't work for us. But I do miss the college game; I miss it dearly. And I'm enjoying this, and I can't wait till we get our shots coming up this week, so we can start seeing the grandkids again. But uh, but I appreciate you guys having me on here,
0: Coach. You've mentioned a couple times about you know getting calls from former players and. You just mentioned right there kids graduating and then obviously you won a championship going into, into the into the tournament um this i don't know how to ask this question and i think the answer is going to be tough but i've just been reminded of, of of basketball and the state of the game the last couple of weeks and um that how much things have changed we talk about the one and done and it's not it's not a right or wrong it's not good or bad it's just so different so i I'm asking you as somebody that's been successful on the floor and then obviously successful in loving humans and helping them get to the next phase of their life. Well, where is the balance? And is it even possible anymore? Is there too much money in college basketball to try to produce good humans and win basketball games? Or is it just, you got to win basketball games. Hopefully I'm making some sense. I've just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that balance.
2: Well, you are making sense, and there's a lot of wonderful people. We've been in uh, – we've sort of been victimized these last few years of hearing and only talking about negativity and hatred. There's a lot of good guys. There's a lot of good coaches, and there's a lot of good young kids. But, yes, the game's changed a great deal. I do a lot of Zooms with college staffs and college teams now. And, I, you know, when you're my age, you can tell the truth. You don't need new friends. And I tell them, look, this has changed – Uh, First and foremost, the idea, and and Jeremy and I laugh about it now, the odds of Larry Mance Jr., Josh Adams, and Justin James to stay in Laramie for four years would echo in a thimble now. It's (laughs) so difficult because of not only what you said, one and dones, but the idea that close to a 1,000 players in men's basketball this year will probably transfer. Is it a bad thing? It's just a different thing. And so what I try to tell coaches is the idea, the pride that you built up in building habits and teaching progressions and knowing that guys would get bigger, better, stronger, and, boy, when they get older, boy, are we going to be able to pay off. It's different. And you have to now coach your team for each year only. that's just the relativity of the game now doesn't matter if you're Duke in Kentucky and taking four or five one and dones for five months or you're everybody else and plucking three or four transfers or one or two graduate transfers to make a team of eight. The bottom line is it has changed. that doesn't necessarily mean bad but what you do have to do is you have to coach a little differently. You have to think a little differently, and you definitely have to plan a lot differently.
1: Coach, I can tell you, uh, I thought your two greatest games would have been uh, January twenty fifth, 2006 in Columbia, South Carolina, and February eighth, two 2006. Uh, but you lost both of those games, so. I
2: don't <laughs> know. I'll tell you what, Dave Odom had our number on year two. No, year and- one. Year one. And, um, and uh, uh, Bruce Pearl had our time the whole time. We won two national championships and went something like two and five against them. <laughs> and sometimes matchups, sometimes the mental psyche, and sometimes, in the case of those two guys, they're just really good coaches with really good teams. But let me let me throw this last thing out here to you guys. You know, when we won the first national championship, I think I told you, You know, Corey Brewer was our leading returning scorer at 4.4. We lost Peep Roberson, David Lee, the best, probably the best college player in the country, and Matt Walsh of the week. And so we, to a lot of other people, we had nothing. We went on a run. I think we won 12 or 13 in a row, and all of a sudden we come from unranked to top 10. Then we petered out. I don't know if you knew this. We were 10 and 6 that year in an average SEC. 10 and six. Most people, if you asked your viewers, uh, 10 and six, they would not be too excited. But we got lightning in the bottle. We won six games. We're now the national champions. What's incredible to me is three weeks earlier, we were 10 and six. And now we were preseason pick number one in the nation. So the job that those guys had in year two, was so dissimilar, and the job that Billy did, bringing in all of the football, basketball, hockey, anybody who had repeated in anything to give us <laughs> advice and give us some philosophy, it was incredible to me to just watch it and and sort of watch it transform because it was a completely different championship than you can think of from the first
1: year. Yeah, you're so right, you guys started off unranked, got to 17-0, and ranked number two in the country, and then you lost back-to-back to Tennessee and, and us at South Carolina, kind of got stymied there for a little bit, won a couple more. Then you lost three in a row in February. I didn't remember this. Arkansas, Tennessee, and Alabama. And some, it, it, some brutal locker rooms at that time, too. And so you're
2: going into the tournament, and you know you're going to be in the tournament, and that's when lightning in the bottle struck. We knocked off everybody in the uh, SEC, and we, including the uh, uh, Catlana, and we, we won that tournament. And then uh, it's six games. And people don't realize sometimes in the, NCAA, in the NCAA tournament, so many things can quickly happen. Could be matchups, could be injuries, illness, could be referees that have a bad game could be just simply put, you don't shoot well that night. It's not the NBA. You're not going to have six other games. And so we really drew some great calls. Uh, We had some fights. But like I said, we won that first championship. Celebration took place. And here we are 48 hours later, and you're number one in the nation. And uh, if you think back three weeks before that, it's incredible.
1: <laughs> that is so true so coach we'd like to end this here on a fun question and you've coached in a lot of years we'll get into how many so we don't get your age but a lot and, you know if i talk to somebody that played for you back at new mexico or one of the guys that played for you providence and one of the guys that played for you there when your championship year wyoming larry Nance, and i said what's the one phrase or saying coach shy says over and over again what would that phrase or saying be? And, and no, no four-letter words here. No, you know, just to uh, – <laughs> uh, I think,
2: honestly, we only had – I'm not a big on the quotes and sayings, but the, it, besides the uh, highest court in the nation, so we reminded people of the elevation uh, constantly in the, uh, in, in the Dome in uh, Wyoming. I would think that it was hard work and intellect will defeat talent when talent doesn't show. And I would always talk about the fact that guys, you'd be surprised in any sport at every level, sometimes talent doesn't show. And if we're ready, you know, like you get me a smarter man or a smarter woman and they can leap over a lot of things. It's hard work and intellect can defeat talent when talent doesn't show.
1: If I told my kids intellect, we'd have to spend a half hour discussing how to spell it. That would be okay. the first problem. Sometimes. You know what? I think that's great, especially we're when we're recording. This is right after the day of the Super Bowl. But what is Tom Brady? Tom Brady's one of the most cerebral players of all time. Because at 43, he does not have the physical tools and talent of a Patrick Mahomes, right? But he has that intellect and he's mentally prepared at all times.
2: Yeah, and I I would constantly remind our guys, like you said, they probably got tired of hearing it. But I would constantly remind them and give them illustrations and examples of where that takes place. And it wasn't just college basketball. I mean, look, the Yankees would win every year. Or, you know, you can think of the example you want. But many times in in the case of what I would tell them, not just sports, business, life in general, hard work and intellect. Those are two commodities. And, uh, I just try to talk them into believing that be proud of it, work at it, and, uh, we'll get by guys. I appreciate this. I really do. I, I, uh, I know the wife was probably happy to get rid of me for 30 minutes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this this has been great. And coach, I I mentioned it pre-show, listened to you on another podcast, the basketball podcast with Chris Oliver. Wonderful, wonderful interview. And, what you're just saying right there really echoes with one of the things that I just really wanted to say on ours. You know, I'm going to butcher your quote, but it was something to the effect of, it's not what you tweet. It's, it's what you do. It's who you are. Those character moments when you're by yourself. And um, I just love all of that. Just in this day and age of, where I think folks are just, you know, trying to get that attention and it's, but what are you doing when nobody's looking? And that's, that's the important thing. So I just, I wanted to end on that. I think that was great, great wisdom there.
2: My boys, my own boys would get tired of that. If you'd asked me my (laughs) own, I would have told all three of my sons, they used to get so tired of hearing it, but you know, it's who you are and what you are when nobody's around that's really who you are. Uh, when no one's listening, no one's looking, that's really who you are. But guys, anything I can do, I, I, I love uh, visiting with uh, college staffs and college programs. Before the pandemic, I, I flew out to a number of programs and just observed the staff, talked to the staff, observed the players, talked to the players. And anything I can do down the road, you just let me know.
0: Well, Coach, we, we appreciate that. We can't thank you enough for, for coming on the show. It's been a, been a lot of fun. Maybe we'll just have to have you back to talk more hoops as we uh, get closer to our 100th episode. Maybe we'll, like I said, have you back here somewhat sometime soon, but we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. For my co-host, Chris de Blasio, I'm Brian Rosefield, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Greatest Games.